If you commit to something, doesn't matter what it is, if you truly commit yourself to that, try to be the best one of those. Your competition is not your competition because they don't behave like you. They don't dress like you. They don't walk as fast as you. They're not as professional as you. When you commit yourself greatly to something, it becomes your passion because you start to have a confidence that says, holy crap, I'm better at this than anyone I know. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that highlights the innovative work of inspiring entrepreneurs whose sustainable businesses are forging new paths that prioritize both social impact and profit. Today, I'm joined by Damon Barron, the founder of Carolina Urban Lumber, a timber company that diverts wood waste from landfills in order to create high-quality furniture. As trees, and naturally the wood that constitutes them, absorb large amounts of carbon as they grow, wasted timber releases a surprising 10.9 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions collectively if it decays in landfills, separated from important decompositional aids like termites or other insects. Carolina Urban Lumber prevents this environmental hazard by reusing this timber before it degrades. The result? They build stunning tables and other natural wood products while they fulfill their mission of protecting the health of our planet. It's pretty stuff and pretty cool to talk about. Let's get started. How are you doing today, Damon? Good to see you again. Good to see you too. I'm great. I want to start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and where you're from. I am from a city called Arlington, Texas, which is where the the Rangers play and now the Cowboys. But uh, when I grew up there, it wasn't that glamorous. It was just between two big cities, Dallas and Fort Worth. And I grew up pretty normal suburb lifestyle. Did you any idea what you wanted to be when you grew up back then? Only in hindsight, my nine fingered shop teacher was inspirational to me. I wasn't exactly what my dad would call a great student. I never had a a lack of capacity to learn or understand things. I just didn't want to do what anybody told me. And so shop class was that place where you couldn't misbehave because there were sharp things. (laughs) So I think that was the place that I actually listened and admired somebody's craft. Leaving high school, did you have a sense for the path you wanted to take? Was it the traditional keep going to school path or was that something different? It was definitely different. You know, without going into too much of my childhood, my dad was a prolific reader. He always said that the Navy paid him to read because he read every book on every ship and every submarine and every base. He just read. And so his education was from reading and living around the world. My education was an experience that I didn't like. And the last thing I thought I wanted to do was go do more of it. So I was a rebellious young kid and got into a lot of trouble and tortured my parents because of it and all that stuff. But I had a foundation from this man and this woman that had good work ethic. I mean, I, did, I had a great childhood and upbringing. Just academics weren't for me. And I, I never finished high school, actually. It was something that I was very embarrassed about for most of my adult life. I didn't share that with a lot of people. I actually tell my kids that now. My kids know that I didn't finish high school. Not because I couldn't. I just wanted to do something different. Carried that baggage with me for a long time. And when I did get a job as an adult in the wood industry at the age of latter part of 19, I realized what I have a proclivity to do is outwork everyone because my insecurity from my non-educated self. 
So I did that for a good 15 years. I outworked everyone around me and on purpose. I just wanted to know more than everybody. I didn't want anyone to know I was not educated. Oftentimes, I would meet new people in the industry and then ask me where I went to undergrad. And so that I learned through that process that what did my education really mean? Education's fine. You know, you can't be a lawyer without a law degree and you can't be a doctor without a PhD. But in my world, I didn't see where it was going to benefit me. So how did you get that first break into the industry? What was the, the path towards the first job? I would say I was visiting my parents in North Carolina, getting away from my early life experience. I lived on my own. And while there, which I thought was a two-week hiatus, I said, well, geez, this weather's nice. And boy, these green trees are beautiful. I'd never immersed myself in a place for two weeks that had trees like this. And I said, well, geez, can I stay longer? I didn't have huge commitments where I was in my floundering lifestyle back home. And um, my parents, of course, said, stay as long as you want. I went and got a job wherever I needed to at that moment. And on the way to my boring job, just to earn some wage, I kept passing this big wood distribution facility, beautiful stacks of lumber, very organized. And the facade of the building was wood. And I think I was off early one day. My job was a, a produce delivery job. And so I was, I'd go in at 4 a.m. and get off like at noon. And so I stopped in one day. I literally walked in the front door and this gentleman was walking down the stairs and he just said, can I help you? He didn't recognize me. I said, I, this was back before everybody put on their resume. I'm a fast learner. I got good work at like I really was a fast learner and I was already street smart and living on my own. And and I said, I can do about anything if you just show me once. And he gave me a job and I swept the floor in the warehouse and then he the manager told me, hey, you want to learn how to help customers with lumber? You want to help customers with this and help customers with that? And a year in, I was managing the warehouse. And two years in, they asked me if I wanted to work sales counter because I knew the product so well. You know, three years in, they asked me if I wanted my own territory because I talked to customers and I associated things well. I, I communicate well. And that was my superpower. And I just didn't know that. I was still uh, an uneducated high school dropout who didn't know anything. And I didn't realize my work ethic, the pace in which I walk, the way in which I looked at people and communicated was my success recipe. Obviously, it took me 15 years of continuing that career and climbing that ladder to then have this aha that, wait a minute, I can do this for myself. I don't need someone else to do this for me. I possess these things. And that was, yeah, 15, 20, 20 years. I had, I had this kind of position with three three different companies in 20 years is what I what I did. When you think back, what were the big things that you walked away from learning from other people that, that stuck out? Well, I mean, I think that being just minimally observant and, you know, using a little deductive reasoning, you can look around the room and understand meritocracy. You know, the guy that saunters into work every day, three minutes late is not the guy, the boss always wants to ask to do a new task and to take on this new project. You know, the early bird gets the worm. I don't know anyone who excels and gets gratification from their work that doesn't work more than all their friends. There was this thing I was pondering, you know, it's, um, I listen to podcasts, I listen to entrepreneurs and, and people who define success in many ways. The one thing that I repeatedly hear in the past decade was this follow your passion. Make your passion your career. And I don't want to do a blanket statement for everybody out in the world, but 
what I noticed was most of the time people who say that are wealthy because they've busted their butt for a long time and made good sound decisions financially and can afford to say that. I don't know anybody who is 29 and has followed their passion and is still in the middle of the struggle of it who wants to give that advice. When you're in the middle of it, you go, you better get ready. It's hard. You're not going to like it some days. You know, that's when you're in the middle of it. It's only when you're comfortable, you can go follow your passion. I, however, flip that around and say, wait a second. If you commit to something, if you're a bricklayer, if you're a plumber, it doesn't matter what it is. If you truly commit yourself to that, and what I mean by that is try to be the best one of those. Your competition is not your competition because they don't behave like you. They don't dress like you. They don't walk as fast as you. They're not as professional as you, whatever the case may be. What happens is when you commit yourself greatly to something, it becomes your passion because you start to have a confidence that says, holy crap, I'm better at this than anyone I know. It's not like this work identity is my identity. It is almost like I loved woodshop in hindsight. I loved my teacher. It was inspiring. I didn't like all the rest of the teachers, but it was it the impetus that made me where I am today? I don't think so. There was a vacuum in my life. Someone filled it with this opportunity to learn. I took it extremely seriously, and I wanted to know more than anyone. And because of that, I became an expert. And because I was an expert, I was passionate about it because I fixed people's problems. In my career, I was a supplier that everybody wanted to do business with. I was fair and benevolent and hard and hungry for money. I ate what I killed. I worked on commission, made good money, all those things. But I I, I had an ethical, moral life and I was passionate about it. And I'm still passionate about it. If you would have told me 10 years ago, I'm passionate about trees and therefore I'm going to start a business. Okay, great. I guess we could make that correlation. But now my biggest passion is my employees. How do I conduct myself in a way where these people that are around me can retire comfortably? How do I do that? And that's how I do my backwards math now. Okay, if we can't have comfortable lives at the end of this thing, then why the heck are we doing it? I think being passionate in the sense to do what you're passionate about will turn into selfishness if you don't think about more than that. So you have decades experience, you rise through the industry, everyone knows you, everyone knows you're the best, you know, that you've excelled. Was there a moment when you, when you thought to yourself, okay, I, can, I should go do this on my own? How did Carolina Urban Lumber come to be? I was on a sales call with a, a colleague and uh, I met a gentleman in a wood shop who was building a casket for himself from a tree that he planted. Guy was in his 70s, late 70s. And actually, because I, I had a specialty background in finishing, wood finishing. So I offered to him the day I met this gentleman to come back to his town and finish his casket with the most exquisite casket finish that you could imagine. He called me on it later. He says, hey, you know, you told me this thing one day. He thought I was just some young whippersnapper just talking. And I had just torn my ACL. And I said, I can't do it right now. I said, give me three weeks. I'll come down and do it. And I, and I did it. I went down and did it. And so my point to that is I met a man building a casket from a tree that he planted and the whole circularity, circular nature of that, 
I'm in the wood business, brokering and selling things that once grew. And that day on my car ride home, my the the question I asked myself mentally, I was just, you know, what what have I planted? So I've worked hard. I've done this career thing. I learned a lot of stuff. I certainly met a lot of people and peripherally just my experience. I have seen every way to manufacture wood products that you can possibly imagine. And I've got a nearly photographic memory. Like I remember where I was when I saw a particular jig being made to make a certain product. So I go, wow, I've got this steel trap of a memory. I've got all this experience. And how do I put it to work? What have I planted? And the concept was born to find waste trees in a city. We knew they were going to waste. We knew they weren't going to get upcycled or used very greatly, maybe for chipped up for boiler fuel or mulch at best. So yeah, the, the, the start of it was meeting a guy who didn't want his wife to spend a lot of money on a casket when he passed. When I went back to finish his casket, the new, local newspaper was there. They took pictures of me finishing because he had told the story. It was, it's a sweet story. He wrote me a card and yeah, I have it framed because it was important to me. It was a spark that I didn't realize yeah, was going to happen that day in my life. And mind you, I had a pregnant wife with my first child planned. We both had careers. We were like, okay, we're going to have a baby. And, you know, I got home and I just couldn't sleep. And I, you know, a couple of days later, after I looked at videos and YouTubing and reading articles about what happened to urban trees, it had dawned on me. I just told my wife, I said, I, I've got this idea for a business. And she was supportive of me saying that. <laughs> Her dad was a business owner. She likes entrepreneurship. She had a little small business. But I didn't realize the stress that she carried with her with me saying that while she was pregnant and I was I was going to be the breadwinner of the family and while she was you know being a mom early on. So uh, she never told me till years later how stressed she was and bless her heart for being so supportive. I just yeah. Yeah. How'd you get from that to stability? Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of impulsive like that generally. So I'm I had a job. I didn't tell my employer that I had a brainstorm idea to go start my own business. So I kept investigating. I know the new term is side hustle. I <laughs> I didn't really do that. I was just working two jobs, reading at night and uh, writing a business plan and trying to figure out the money part. And, and then I bought, started buying some equipment and working on the weekends. And eventually, I think my employer noticed my... <laughs> my fall off of my performance because I was distracted. And we, we just came to a mutual yeah. understanding at that point that I was going to make that break at that point. And it was premature. It was awful, not productive financially for me and my family at all. I didn't have any investors. I didn't go to the bank. There was a book that I read later and it dawned on me that that's the practice I was practicing, but it was a book called uh, Pivot or Perseverance. So, I had perseverance. I said, I know I can make this work. And I did fail at a startup also. I had an idea, thought it would work. It didn't. Yeah. So I, I was strong about my idea. I was early in the national movement of urban logging and urban forestry with provenance. Not to say people hadn't done it. People have done it. I wasn't new to the game. I just was really adamant about tracking the tree. I was really adamant about not paying people for trees because someone who may rather have the money and cut down a healthy tree was not the game that I wanted to play. Sure. 
So I never paid for trees, which limited my supply. However, the perseverance, knowing that I had to get through the hurdle of when you cut, let's say, logs into something other than logs, you have this time period of the moisture or wetness coming out of the wood before it's valuable or highest value. I will say early on, I did a cash flow spreadsheet. You know, one of my banker friends did my thing for me, made pivot tables and all that stuff. There's this stuff called green wood, which is right off the tree. You cut it. It's green. It's not valuable in the furniture industry. The pallet manufacturers buy it because they make pallets from it. Sure. And then after the pallets are made, then they dry it and it shrinks all the nails together. And it's a great production. However, I went around all the pallet companies and I asked for orders. So, okay, finally got an order, went back to the mill. And I think I worked on the order for about 92 minutes and said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> this math was theoretical on paper. This is never going to get me to support two kids. So I called the customer back and I said, I appreciate your order. I was wrong. I cannot be your supplier. And then I persevered down the high quality road, dry the wood. It takes a long time. I persevered. And also I had a 20 year background in communication of sales. I knew how to go and convey a message and convey a product and ask for an order. And so it works the same with dating. I learned early on, I was always better than my friends at dating. And they always wondered why I was always had a girlfriend or a new date. And I said, because I ask a lot of them. <laughs> so, you know, if you ask a hundred girls out, uh, you know, chances are you're going to get a date. If you ask three out, you know, uh, chances are you're not. So I just used that same strategy of asking for orders. And that's the perseverance part. We forget sometimes that when you're a small startup, you're going to wear so many hats that if you're uncomfortable with an aspect of what it's going to take, uh, you better walk into the light really quickly and get comfortable with it because yeah. you're going to have to do it regardless. Curious kind of how you see the overall opportunity that you're feeling or problem that you're solving for the marketplace. I think the problem that I set out to solve was there is a, a waste stream within cities which have a tree canopy that's categorized as wood waste. And that waste stream from an environmental standpoint, is a carbon-based product. When it rots, a biodegradation process happens with the floral, the fauna, the microorganisms. Methane is created through that product process, and the carbon which was stored yep. is now back into the atmosphere. Sometimes the carbon is into the soil, which is great. That, that's one aspect. Two, it's just a pure mass thing. You know, you, you can only sure. go take these things and so many places and put them in piles until the piles are full and you have to take them further. And you take them further and that's big trucks driving on the road more and more fuel and more tires. And when these tree debris get to the most scalable place, if they're not just buried in the ground, that scalable commodity is wood chips. Wood chips run... $37 a ton. Well, we're at a point now in our business, we're making high quality heirloom furniture, floating shelves or mantles or dining tables, conference room tables. And we're on the average of about 20,000 per ton. 
and this is pure business now. This is free market capitalism side of me. Yep. And with that, I'm employing people that have 401ks and healthcare. The goal is if you can do that and have employees that you can keep investing in from a training perspective plus a compensation perspective, then they just grow. And I think that's what makes my company as healthy as it is. You talk about the kind of the early days in the slog. I'm wondering if there was a point at which everyone else started to see this and you started to feel less pressure and more like, yeah, this is working. This is going to work. We got this. Well, uh, <laughs> I think the year that I paid a lot of taxes to the IRS was probably <laughs> that, that moment that I was like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I then you go, well, I guess that's a good thing. I get, you know, I guess the company must be working. Yeah, it must be working. But I would say, yes, there was that moment that I go, this is working. And then at the same time, I'm not usually ever content with working. I know the way capitalism and free market works is somebody else always wants what you have. Someone else in their garage starting a business because that you've inspired them or they were inspired by somebody else and they want to go do that thing, whatever it is, and more power to them. So our job here, my job in this seat is to constantly find ways to make sure we can stay on a path that can sustain us. And so I'm always nervous. I've tried to adopt the mindset of, you know, it needs to be my mindset, my thought pattern of abundance and all that. You know, Okay, great. I, I get it. However, I think I did relax during COVID because COVID just made us crazy busy because everybody was at home and everybody yeah. was like, oh, let me fix my house up and get some new furniture and spend some government money and blah, blah, blah. So we were super busy. And then during COVID, I, my wife's European. She wanted to take my kids over for a whole year and let them go to school there. And I spent three months in Europe running my business from my email and doing Zoom calls. And boy, I don't feel like we skipped a beat. And at the same time, I felt really insecure. I was like, I got to get back. And yeah, the entrepreneur's dilemma is you want to get to a point where the business doesn't need you. At the same time, you have to make that decision. If that's the role you're going to take, you have to have everyone in place that's going to do all those things. Otherwise, you still have a role at the company as a technician, as a manager, as something, as well as the owner. I'm still a technician at my company. I still hold the high level of my background of wood finishing, and it applies to our final product. Because although I have a great team of craftsmen and they like learning, it would take 10 years for me to replace me teaching one of them. And so I think that my best bet would be that when someone would walk across our threshold that had a skill set that would replace me as that technician, I'll hire that person if they want to join our team. But until then, I have to be a technician as well as sit in this chair. Yeah. And the guys in our the team that I have treat me like a coworker. I don't walk around with the boss shirt on. I take Mark Cuban's rules, 12 rules for small business. If you've never read them, I would definitely read them. I love them. And he says, keep it flat. You know, no private offices, no closed doors. And it's a 10 person company and it's flat. Yeah. And everybody's allowed to question the actions of anyone else. Why are you doing that? What's the outcome going to be? I'm happy that that's uh, what we've built here. 
You talk about a real market and capitalist explanation for how and why things work, but also what you're doing really is great for the environment relative to the alternatives. And you're building a very sustainable product and business because of it. How much are you thinking about the impact you're making outside of you know, the P&L, but on the world? We think about it a lot. We, it's a topic in our weekly meetings. It's on our core values. It's part of the fabric of what we are. We are not going to do it another way. We're going to stand behind this model. We live in a city with a majestic tree canopy, and we don't want any of them to fall, but we want to be the standard. If, if, we, if we have 10 people copy us, then we're successful. We want to have competition, but we want to have competition that goes to the lengths that we do to use an upcycled product, not motivate a tree to come down with money, put some provenance on it by tracking it. That takes all extra work. But when you do that, if you can copycat that, then what you've done is changed an industry. Yeah. You know, we, we say, where did your table grow? Where did it come from? How far did it travel? We don't want to mudsling on the, the way it's been done. But the way it's been done is just the way it's been done through inertia and business and globalization and all sorts of things that we can't demonize. It's gotten us here. Now, can we build a better version of it? Sure. You know, put your money where your mouth is and let's go do it. People come into this building and they walk through our inventory and they look at the tree. We have a chart on the wall of all the tree IDs, which you can track. And the slabs or the inventory has that number on it. And they can reference over and go, oh. Here, I don't know in your city, but in our town, people are proud of the neighborhood they live in. Sure. I live in Chantilly and I live in Plaza and I live in, you know, Montford. And they want a piece of wood from a tree from Montford. Yeah. And I I think like 10 years ago, that was unheard of. So it, it fills me with an enormous amount of pride to know that this crazy conjured idea that I had has turned into that. Oh, it's it's fantastic, you know, and I never want to not do it. Where do you see this going? Is this? Do you think this is a trend that will spread nationwide? That we'll see more and more craftsmen in cities around the country who are working with stuff that's coming down in the city. Is is this something that you think is on the way up? Absolutely. I don't think the pressure to use waste products or to lessen waste products will ever be less. It will the pressure will always be greater. Part of that is through narrative, part of that is through policy, part of that is through a renaissance and a desire by the consumer. I liken it to these shops that people are buying bulk, environmentally friendly shampoo. I get my shampoo from this woman that you know, I keep using the same containers and I can't even fathom throwing away plastic heavy containers anymore. It's not a burden on me. It actually makes me feel better when I go down and, and go to sleep at night. And so I, I think that what we do is just like that. When you walk in your house and you see the piece of furniture, then you know that story behind it. You go, this feels good. I know it does in my house. Like I have a big wood island top. I can't stand not to look at it. I love looking at it. I knew where it grew. And everybody that walks in my house touches it. So I don't think it's going away, and I hope that people continue to pick up the torch and run with it and run faster. Yeah. I think there's a huge growing consumer appreciation and awareness, and I, I think it probably starts with highly crafted products. It's much easier, I think, 
for a lot of consumers to understand that. I am curious what the pathway will be for that idea to trickle down to everything like shampoos, trying to figure out how that those dots are connected, you know? I think it probably goes back to defining success. I, I think that it takes someone who cares enough about saying, I'm going to take a risk and go and try this thing, and then persevering and making it happen. It's funny, I toe the line there between caring about gluttony and environmental things that just cause awful, the byproduct is awful for the environment and all this stuff, which is concerning to me. And then at the same time, I don't think Governor Newsom needs to tell everybody how to fix all the environmental problems by conducting business a certain way. I think when the market shifts and people are willing to do something, people have to pounce on it. I mean, you can look all around and see progress if you want to find it and go, wow, gee, someone made that little widget and it made everything better and less trash. Be inspired to just do stuff. You know, you don't have to be passionate about whales and and go be a marine biologist and all that. You could be passionate about Starbucks cups. I hate wasting Starbucks cups. I say that because I had a, an idea and I, it was a pitch to Starbucks, but it all revolved around wood waste and what I understood about stored solar yeah. energy. So there's a lot of ways to use wood waste for energy if it's not shipped far, if it's dealt with the proper way. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. It's not going to replace coal power plants or anything, but it's still interesting concept. No, but each of the each innovation, small and large, adds up, right? That's right. Early on, I had a conversation with rancher Lou Mormon in Texas, and he has this what he calls the Prius problem, which is you don't just need to build something just for the purposes of selling it. You need to build something people want. And like there's a reason that Teslas sell and sell out, and that Priuses people bought them because they felt good about them, but you know, it was a rolling toaster. And and then you know, as technology improved and the design improved, now all of a sudden people you know, these cars are awesome. So building the thing people want, I think is also critical. I agree hundred percent. So I want to end on some just kind of a, a big question. We talked about success a lot. <laughs> How would you, if you're trying to inspire the next generation, encourage them to think about defining their own success? I really think that I find myself successful when I get through my day productively and I feel good about what I've done. And it's a constant self-awareness game and reflection game. You know, you just have to reflect on the way what your actions are doing, how it makes you feel. And are you fulfilling all your potential? I'm 47, I'm almost 48 years old, and I feel like I'm 15 and I'm and I'm mad that I'm 48 sometimes. I have a chart on my wall, it's dots. And if if anybody's never seen this, it's called my life calendar. And every week I scratch off another dot. The black ones are weeks that I already lived. And the white ones are dots that I haven't lived if I live to be 90. And I'm more than halfway on mine. So if someone would have given that to me when I was 20, I don't know if it would have motivated me any differently. But I I think people need to take something real seriously. Go through your day like it's your last day. I don't believe in following your passion necessarily, but walk with a pace. Take yourself seriously. Own your tone. All those things will create a success to me. 
you will love yourself for. And you can apply that in business, in your relationships, in your personal finances. But it's more a self-reflection thing and a self-accountability thing. And above all, if you don't know something, if you're not good at something, you better learn it or avoid doing it because you're not going to be good at it if you don't. So I hope that my message is conveyed that you have to be your worst critic and hold yourself accountable. That's the one thing my dad taught me. I was the only one in this world responsible for my life. And after that, it's easy. I mean, nothing's easy. That's the, <laughs> the nothing. Everything is a struggle all the time. And actually, it makes me feel more alive than I can possibly convey. I feel so alive and that makes me feel successful. Big thanks to Damon for today's conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Harrigal, and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll see you next week.